This is Near Dark Radio. Near Dark Radio. Near Dark Radio. Near Dark Radio. Welcome back to the show, folks. This is your host, John Gower, and I'm joined today by Mr. Justin Adams. Justin is a teacher. Justin is a farmer. Justin is a man who is interested in the future of this great nation, or at least his own future. <laughs> all of those things are true. Yes. I guess you could say guilty on all counts. Guilty on all counts. I'm a professional teacher and a very amateur farmer. I like to say that I'm a nonprofit goat farmer. Because you're the first to be on the show. If if I were ever to break even on the goat business, that would be a miracle. That'll be the name of the podcast, Breaking Even on the Goat Business. <laughs> <laughs> no, probably not. Um, well, you're here today to discuss some some thoughts concerning education. Yeah. That's a big that's a big topic. And one that I like to address every once in a while from, a, from miles high, you know? Yes. Now, let's not get too much into the weeds unless we have to. But um, uh, you teach? I teach middle school language arts. Middle school language arts. Right. And I hate the term language arts, but, I that, do but that's what they call it. <laughs> so typically I say I'm a middle school English teacher or I'll just say, yeah, teach them how to read and write good. Mm-hmm. And I try to, I mean, obviously I don't have the, the, the Robertson County, Southwestern Kentucky, whatever accent. I'm from Indiana, not quite Indiana, mostly Louisville. Right. So right. I, I try to blend in sometimes, but I'm bad at it. So you're teaching the kids the English. The, the, the Englishes. Do you, the Englishes. The Englishes. Interesting. Sorry, that's just a quote from uh, Amy Tan. Amy Tan. Yeah, it's some, some piece I read recently where she was talking about her, her mother, um, who was Chinese, and she, she spoke. So Amy Tan speaks different Englishes. You know, she's got the right, academic right, English. Right. She's got the English that she speaks at home that's like a mixture with her, her mother's native language. She's a code switcher. Code switch. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. what it is. It's code yeah. switching. Yeah. So I, I code switch. Right. You know, there, there's, there's a way that, and I think that that's a, a beneficial thing to do. So I tell the kids, like, you can talk however you want to mm-hmm. at home with your family. There's nothing wrong with that. You can talk however you want to in, in the class. So, like, I say y'all and ain't so they know that it's fine. I just say, like, you know, when we're, you have to know your audience and, you know, communicate right. appropriately based upon who's around. And I've been told it's cute when we say y'all. I've been told by Californians and New Yorkers. Cute. <clears throat> that it's cute and that they like it. I, I just think it's resourceful because... It's quite resourceful. It's we we con- don't have any It's a legitimate contraction. It is. That should be part of the English language. It, it really is. So because there's no differentiation between the second person singular and the second person plural, regions have come up with their own. So right. we, we have y'all. Over in eastern Kentucky, they have uh, yuns or yins. Which yins. Is yins. You ones. Uh-huh. And up in Pennsylvania, they have... Use or use guys, which is really said as if it's one word. Good God. Yeah, I, I know, but but still, like maybe we need to rein it in. Okay, Pennsylvania. You no, know, I think that their heart's in the right place. You, what, what was it? So there's y'all. Yeah. Use yins, yuns, yuns, yuns. I like and, that one. And, That's a nice one. Use guys. Use guys. Yeah. See, no, I can't. Tournament. I can't get on, can't get on board with that. We'll play a tournament with use guys. Yeah. Well. The Pennsylvania Dutch have a lot to explain. <laughs> um, 
let's start with what's in the news, I suppose. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Bill de Blasio announced that he's planning on canceling the gifted programs in yes. the New York City's school system. Um, and his successor said he doesn't. So I'm not sure how much news that really brings us, but the way that this is this issue is being framed is that the gifted program is actively segregating mm -hmm. the New York City school system. And I wanted to I wanted to get your thoughts on gifted programs mm -hmm. generally. Yeah. Um, do they still have them? I, I think that Kentucky. So, so what you find with so many educational issues is that there's a lot of difference, not just from state to state and not just from county to county, but from school district to school district. Sure. So where I teach, there's a, a county school system, which is uh, the one that I teach in. And then there's a city school system that, you know, is nested within it geographically. Uh-huh. And, and th there are differences. Th th there are profound differences in the way that we do things, even inside of the same county because of the, the two different districts. And I think that's a positive thing overall, or it more potentially positive than negative, because I think that the more local control happens to be centered, uh, the better. Now, so right. I, I was reading that, that article about de Blasio, and it, it looked like a whole lot of political smoke and mirrors. Meet, yes, that's that's what it seems. Right. I, I don't think that I would, like, I don't, I guess de Blasio is probably... Uh, a Democrat. Oh, absolutely. But I don't know that I would necessarily trust what a Republican in New York would say mm, either. I mean, right. you know, at, at the level of running for mayor of New York City, it's like, well, what, what do you actually know about education? And maybe they have good advisors or something. But when I read that article, it's, it, it seemed like the New York school system is a mess, Number one. Yes. Which, of course, I've never been I've, there. Well, so it's I, the biggest in the country. It's the biggest in the country. Yeah. It can't be easy to manage. Right. Um, but, yeah, it's a, I, I just feel like this is another example of something being framed as a racial issue mm -hmm. or, a, a, you know, an equity issue. Yes. When in reality, it's something that's affecting all of America, mm -hmm. at least certain portions of the population, probably more divided by class than anything. Yeah. And it's sort of being, it, it, they're just talking about it in this racial way to mm -hmm. disguise the fact that all Americans are being, all American children are being mistreated by the education system. I would say that the potential is, is always there because it's, it's just, it's, it's too, it's too big. And the reason that, I don't know, I think that teachers by and large, deserve a lot of credit for shielding students from a lot of the nonsense right, right, that's, right. that's above them. You know, like really teachers and students are in the, the trenches together, so to speak. Yes, yes. I mean, I like, like, the, I like the, the lowest rung of the ladder is would be either students or teachers. And actually some, some districts that I'm, I'm aware of, really the teachers are even lower than the students. Yeah, in, yeah. In, in, in terms of... Um, say so or priority, and and that that maybe is a little bit of a in the weeds type of in thing. The, well, do you mean in the sense that the students get to like, like for example, a student can complain to their parents that they're not getting the right grades, and the teacher has yeah. to kind of adjust. That that's that's one example. Uh -huh. and, and I guess what I what I really mean is that 
th there are situations that I'm aware of where the children are treated like adults and the adults are treated like children. Right, right. But, but either way, either way, they're at the very bottom of a massive bureaucracy. Uh-huh. I actually just, this is interesting. It has nothing to do with education, but I saw a commercial, um, I think on, I started watching Brideshead Revisited, the okay. BBC miniseries adaptation of the novel, because I'm a gay dork. <laughs> and one of the commercials in it showed like two parents sitting on a couch with their, you know, six, five, six year old child in between mm -hmm. them. And the child was playing some game on a, on a tablet. And that was stretch one. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that, is that what they use? Is that what they use for drone strikes in the middle East? Or oh what? man. <laughs> but anyway, but anyway, the, the, what the impression I got from this, this commercial was that the child was determining what the family does together. Yeah. In a very in a very strange and sick way because it's it's playing mm -hmm. a game on a tablet. Right. And the parents are both sitting on either side smiling, looking at what the child is doing and it's like Christ, is, do families do this? I do, think I think so. Ah. I, mean, I mean it doesn't I don't I wouldn't say that it always looks like that, but I I I've witnessed a, a lot of situations where where the children are considered to be the experts about what the children need. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, you could, yeah, in talking about like, um, you know, what technology they need to have in order to fit in. Right, and which the answer friends. is none. None, but mm, <laughs> they know better um, what sort of surgery they need to change their genders. Uh, all, all, all sorts of things, but it really is like at the root, a like an abdication of parental uh, responsibility, yeah. uh, authority, nurturing. Um, and, and like this is a quote that, that somebody actually told me, uh, some people that, that, that I was close with at one point. They, they were raising their grandchildren, which, you know, that, that's prevalent also. Mm -hmm. And... That they were they were spoiling these kids. I mean, really, really dramatically spoiling them to the point where the the kids had absolutely no boundaries, and they're just acting out, yeah, ab absurdly, yeah. I mean, and violently, also. <laughs> and and this grandmother said to me, "Well, I just want to give them everything that they want, so that when they're older, they won't resent me." Christ, that's like. That's like a 95% like quote word for word. Yeah. Now, I mean, grandparents are known for spoiling the children more so than the sure, parents. Sure, yeah. But yeah, no, that sounds a bit. Right. And and I don't point that out be, just like because this person was was the like kind of dual role parent, uh -huh. grandparent, but just because I think that that gives, gives voice to something that's rarely admitted. Right, 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 right. And so you see that happening in the education in in public schools. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Yeah. And so back to gifted programs. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> what is, what is, we had we had one at the the public school I went to. It was called Rise, I think. Okay. I bet it was an acronym. Yes, it was. Perfect. Retarded individuals <laughs> seeking empowerment. 
no. Um, well, everything except for the first word probably <laughs> is like, uh, I, I don't. I have no idea what the R would have stood for. Maybe Robertson. Uh, maybe something. yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know. But but that sounds like like something that would come out of a, a educational think tank. Think yeah. Tank. Yeah. 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 They, they, they love jargon. They love technical terminology that they don't understand. <laughs> uh, they they love acronyms. Yeah. Like yeah. you were only smart. Or, or, you know, an impressive teacher to the extent that you can rattle off anything in a language that is only comprehensible to yourself. Sounds like, I mean, you could interchange teachers for CIA agents. I mean, or, well, maybe we should say the professional class. The professional class, the PMCs. Yes. Yes. Um, okay. So, so, so gifted and talented stuff. Yeah. <clears throat> honestly, we we don't see a whole lot of that. It doesn't seem like that's a huge focus. Well, you are teaching in, in, in Kentucky, my, so let's... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't seem like there's a huge focus. I mean, I know that gifted and talented students are identified, and they're identified in elementary school. And like that article about de Blasio, apparently in New York City, there's this high-stakes test that kids take in kindergarten. Right. And I just think that that's horrendous. Yeah. Like, why are kindergartners taking tests? Right. Like... They they don't they don't. It literally it. means chill, garden of children. Right. It's supposed to be a a developmental space, not a yeah analyzed and. It's like they, they they need to play and they need stories and they need right you know to start learning to read that they, they don't need any like really super content oriented anything and so so what if a kid is you know maybe accelerated for one reason or another, whether it's uh, due to nature or nurture. Right. Okay. So you identify that you identify this kid, you label this kid as a kindergartner. Like that, I, that's like labeling and diagnosing whether for, for good or ill is, uh, I mean, it, it's really reprehensible yeah. to me. Like, I, I, don't, I don't think it should be done because like, I, I, I can't imagine a, a healthy parent wanting a, a label on a child. Yeah, but, 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 but maybe maybe some do like it's just no. Really, I think a lot do. Okay, yeah. It's, I think it's, it's, it's another a really foreign way of. It's another abdication of parental responsibility. If they can have a diagnosis from an expert, right, put on their child, then they know what you know program to follow. Yeah, in and raising of course, child. I, I don't mean that that diagnoses are not necessary for serious medical conditions. Sure, sure, sure. But, you know, I mean, like, slap the, the gifted and talented label. Oh, like, man, right. it, I, I don't think it's beneficial. That's not to say that schools shouldn't, you know, try to meet kids where they are. And if a kid happens to be ahead, you know, try to, try to make some special effort to sure. help that kid go further. Sure. Just like you would want to make a special effort for a kid who's a little bit behind to... To, to catch up or, you know, some sort of um, intervention. Yeah. But, but even when we get into that, that people think they're being researched, research-based, or you got to have research-based interventions, but th this is kind of another rabbit trail. But in, in the reading that I've done on educational research, the things that actually help the kids who seem to be behind to catch up and the things that help the ones who are a little bit ahead to keep excelling are are not they're not sufficiently i don't know hip 
educationally speaking. <laughs> uh, do you do you mean they're not relevant to the children? <laughs> I, 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 I mean that I mean they don't fit the socio political narrative, and and I and I don't mean like liberal or conservative. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Like it it didn't like the the research doesn't fit George W. Bush's No Child Left Behind, for for example. Right. Um, which, right, you're saying that was just a bad program. It, yeah, it's bad. Yeah. It's bad. And like I could go into some specifics, but I, I think that it fits into this whole like, you know, gifted and talented thing. And like, like how exactly do we, because really the, the, the foundational question is how do we educate children? Right. Like regardless of, of where they are. And I think that there's a lot of well-intentioned missing the mark. Yeah. But when it comes to gifted and talented things, <clears throat> I do think that that there ought to be a recognition of the public that if you have a teacher like like myself, where where I've got a, a classroom full of twenty or twenty five kids, mm -hmm. and their reading levels in middle school run the gamut from kindergarten to nearly college. Yeah, it's like okay, so how do how do I how do I do that? Right. That's that's well, enormously difficult. And so the gifted and talented thing, I think, is trying to address that. Like, how can we do something extra for these kids who, who maybe aren't being pushed sufficiently yeah. in the regular education classroom? But in New York, what it looks like is that they have, like, kind of educational tracking where they... Like they do in Germany. Right. Where, yeah. where it's like, you know, if, if you test high enough when you're in kindergarten, you're in this classroom over here, right. you know, where the smart kids are. Right. And over here. And you're tracked for a different kind of yeah. uh, middle school, high school, college from it's day pretty, one. That's pretty dystopian. It is. It's, well, I mean, I, there was a time when I thought we should do that, mm -hmm. when I learned that that's what they do in Germany. Yeah. And because for this reason, because I don't think the way to triage children in the education system, I don't think the most efficient way to do that is just by age, which is mm -hmm. how we do it now. Yeah. Like it should, like there should be like, oh, you have these kids that are really good at reading. Let's, let's get them on in, in a classroom where they're doing a lot of reading and writing. Yeah. You have these kids that are really good at math. Um, let's put them in a room called autism and let them do that. You had these kids that are really good at building. They're not good at reading and math. Yeah. But say they, you know, they, they have an aptitude for building things mm -hmm. or working with their hands or they, you know, they want to be a farmer when they grow up. Triage in that way. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, any way, you, any way you try to do it, you're doing it from the top down, which seems dystopian and can be dystopian. Right. I mean, and, and that's that's the direction that it's going to go unless something intervenes, you know, unless right. something stops it, which if you look at the, the overall trajectory of education over the last, let's say, 140 years, you go from like Little House on the Prairie, one room schoolhouses right. to, you know, these these massive, uh, you know, several thousand uh, kid high schools or mm -hmm. middle schools or w w whatever where, you know, they just get lost in the crowd. Right. But, but the trajectory is going from like small community based things 
to ever-expanding centralization. Yes. And consolidation. Like, in my district, we have... It it used to be that there were um, five county schools that were K through 12. Mm -hmm. And back in the early 80s, uh, they had a... uh, they, they built a central high school. Uh-huh. And so then the five schools that were spread out throughout the county in communities became K through eights that feed the central high school. Right. And I think that that's a, a really unfortunate thing. Now, that's my opinion. And, and I, talking to people in the community over the last 10 years, I know that there, there are a lot of people who wish that it was still like K through 12 schools. Yeah. They're spread out throughout the county. And then others who seems like mostly for athletic purposes, want there to be that that one central high school. There have been talks even Athlet- of a central can middle we, school. Can but- we just note that athletic programs have really taken over, have taken top priority sure. in education? Sure. And, and just, I, I don't yeah. want to get into that, but. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. And like, I was a college athlete. Okay. I, I played baseball in college. Baseball. Yeah, okay. left-handed pitcher. Um that's, that was my nickname in middle school. Baseball? No. Pitcher. Left-handed pitcher. Left-handed pitcher. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah. So you have this centralization. You have, I mean, I mean, we've kind of talked about this on the show before, um, that Foucault, the French demon from hell that <laughs> the conservatives like to hate, uh, made the astute observation that since the Industrial Revolution, schools have been modeled on and adopted a lot of the different practices mm-hmm. of <clears throat> prisons and mm-hmm. factories. Yeah. And they're more disciplinary. Um, their modus operandi is more disciplinary than it is, what would you call it, educational? Yeah. Or whatever falls under that umbrella. Yeah, and, and so I would say that the, the more community-based and, and small that a school happens to be, the, the more that the, the teachers and administration in places like that can insulate children from that tendency of uh, just the kind of industrial right. focus Produ- Producing education. good workers. Yeah, and, and that, that really is the entire goal of the modern secondary school according to I mean, I mean, that's from the horse's oh. mouth. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like, I, honestly, when... So I, I was an English major. I, I think I mentioned this last night. And for me, education was an afterthought. The last thing I wanted to be was a teacher. Right. Like, my mom was a teacher. So I sort of saw that and was like, no way. So I was an English major just because I, I liked English class in high school. Like, I went to college to be a baseball player. Uh-huh. I mean, knowing full well, I probably wouldn't make the pros because that's incredibly unlikely. But I, I got not with that attitude. <laughs> oh man, yeah, good point. <laughs> but yeah, so so I when I got into my my master's degree, which was like they called it alternative certification, and so it was to just kind of like run me through the the ringer, have me jump through the hoops to get my certification. Yeah. And so I, like I'm, I think that I was able to think a little bit more critically about the things that I was reading. And actually, once you asked me to, to come on the, the show, I started looking at some of my uh, material from graduate school, like uh, my philosophy of education paper that I wrote, uh-huh. because there were some quotes that stood out to me from certain books that I had to read for class. Yeah, One of them was in a class called the Modern Secondary School. And so its purpose was to say, here's what 
the modern, modern secondary school is, here's what its priorities are, and here's why it's a good thing. So it was a book that was written not quite as a, like a panegyric or something, but it, it wasn't critical. Right. And it was, it was the modern secondary school saying, <clears throat> stating its purpose and defending itself. Here's what it is, and here's why it's good. Right. And so, man, I wish I could quote this word for word, but this is a very close paraphrase. It said that all the changes that have occurred in the modern secondary school over the last hundred years have been in keeping with the, the wants and the needs of the industrial economy. <sighs> and so from the earliest ages, we have to inculcate children into that system. Right. And I, and, and I read that and I thought, inculcate? Okay, we, we, have, we, have, we, have, we have a problem here. Problem, prob, possible problem number one is that you don't know what inculcate means. Right, 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 right. And I would prefer that problem. I hope you don't know what that means. Because problem number two, you know what it means. Right. Because like- it's I'm pretty just, sure they know exactly. It's a hop, skip, and a jump from inculcate to brainwash. It's the, yeah, yeah. They're synonyms. Oh, yeah, that, that might be the better way of putting it. Right, like, and yeah, and you have this, I mean- you know, there's uh, what I'm having difficult difficulty distinguishing between is what conservatives want to protect mm-hmm. when they talk about capitalism, yeah, and what liberals want to critique when they talk about capitalism, yeah. And what I think <clears throat> the distinction is is modern industrial consumerism, yeah, is what the issue is. It's not. I don't have an issue with free markets. I don't have mm-hmm. an issue with people owning the means of their, you know, a single individual owning the means of production. Yeah. I have an issue with the whole purpose of a society being to consume and produce consumer goods. Right. The thing is, the liberals don't have anything against that either. No, they, no, they don't. They that, truly don't. That, that, that's why AOC is don't. talking $65 sweatshirts that say tax the rich. Who, yes. Who in the world does she think is is buying those? Right. It's not the working classes. No. It's not the workers of the no, world like, that will unite. Like like how many how many African Americans down south Maine are wearing AOC's garb? Right. None. And I don't think they want to. No. No. No one wants I mean the only people that want to wear that are again PMC class kids that went to a upper to upper class college. Right. That have the means and that want to appear as though they care. Virtue signaling. Yes. Which virtue signaling is the 21st century genuflection. Mm -hmm. It's religious. It's the ashes on the forehead. Absolutely it is. Right. It's, it's, it's also, it's, it's penance, but instead of this, and, and it's confession, but instead of this, uh, you know, even in the forever in, in the old Catholic church, you know, you go to confession because you want to get your own sins off of your chest. And, you know, the idea is that you want to do something about it. Right. You know, like you're in the struggle against things that, you know, you know, are not the best. Yeah. And you, you might not want to tell your neighbor, you might not want it to be public, but you know, and so you are going to confess it to the priest as a proxy of God himself. Right. In this, in this battle against this darkness within. Mm-hmm. But with modern virtue signaling, it's it's a genuflection of doing the same thing for your neighbor. You know, Jesus talked about, you know, the, the, you got to take out the plank out of your own eye before right. you 
try to get the speck out of your brother's eye? Well, virtue signaling is making sure everyone knows about every speck that's ever been in, you know, their, <laughs> right, right. Th- their eye. Right. It's kind of calling out everyone else's sins. Right. It's like, man, you, you think God is bad and you think Christianity's bad or like any traditional value structure, you know, wait till you see where, what replaces it. Right. The, wor- the worst religions are the ones that claim that they're not. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And we've talked about this on the podcast before, but that there is, I mean, I don't want to be too um, materialistic about it, but there is an instinct in man that is a religious instinct and it will be, it will be satisfied one way or another. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to manifest itself in the, in the material world. Right. The only question is how. Well, now we have the secular versions of religion coming in. And I mean, I, like you said, the education system that we have now is set up to inculcate our youth in that religion. And it's not, you know, conservatives will say it's the new religion is Marxist. It's Marxist Leninism or it's the critical theory, which there is a lot of critical theory sort of um, undergirding what we teach and how we teach. But it's more so like the, the real thing driving everything is again, this industrial consumerism. Yeah. And, and and the the interesting thing about that, and I, I, I completely agree. The interesting thing about that is that the left and the right actually agree about that. Yeah. I mean, like, like look at the corporate donors to the Biden campaign. Yeah. Like, yeah. Look at the Wall Street donations to the Biden campaign. Right. Look at the big tech donations. To, and, and that's not to say that, you know, man, we should have had Trump or, you know, that Biden's so bad. It's just to say, like, clearly the liberal establishment doesn't have anything wrong with this corporatist elite thing right. that, that's going on. And, and neither neither do the, um, I mean, a, a particular, uh, you know, wing, you, you might say, of of the, the conservative side. And I, I think that, that that's that's really unfortunate. I mean, well, it's uh, and if you if you look even further at the far left and the far right, they agree that this is a problem. You, that, they that's both a, that's agree a great that point. This is a problem. Yeah. And so I don't even. I mean, I don't even find that the left and the right make sense anymore. as, yeah. as political as uh, terms that represent any sort of political reality mm-hmm. in America, at least. I mean, I think one thing I heard, I heard it described as that the centers, the center has become extremists mm. in the mm-hmm. sense that they are the ones, both Republican and Democrats. Um, you can count Nancy Pelosi among them. You can count Mitch McConnell among them. You can count Joe Biden among them. You can, you can count George W. Bush among them. They're the people that are trying to sustain this global economic feudalism that we have going yeah. on. And, well, they're, and they're trying to protect the interests of the people that own the factories in Southeast Asia mm-hmm. and sell us the consumer goods. They're not interested in, in the American people themselves. Right. And, and that, that actually, that mindset shows up in education and, and, and it's increasingly, it's becoming increasingly, prevalent. And I like, I should have said this already, but, um, maybe it's in a little bit implicit or, or easy to infer, but you know, like I teach in a small rural school 
Right. And, and I can't imagine teaching anywhere else in public education. Like, I think that we get more right than we get wrong. I teach with some great people. And so I, I hope that um, no one would, would I, I guess I, I just would want anybody listening to, to know that, that there are places, there are public schools that are getting a lot right. Of course, like no, right, right, no right. place is perfect because even a, a K through eight school with 400 students like, like we have or 450 or something like that, that's also, that, that's pretty big. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so we, we do get things wrong. There are kids who slip through the cracks, but like we, like the team that I'm on, like the, the group of middle school teachers, like, like we do work together so closely and we've been together teaching for like most of us have been there for a decade or longer. Uh-huh. So, you know, like we don't just know the kids, we know the families, we know the aunts and the uncles and the, the grandparents. And I didn't even grow up there, but like I've been there long enough that, you know, I, I know that community. And so in that context, way, yeah, in that way, you can't because what, what a lot of, um, again, conservatives complain about with the education system is that it's being used as a way to replace the, the parents and the mm -hmm. family. It's sort of a a great, you know, liberals would say it's the great equalizer. Conservatives would say it's the great neutralizer. Mm. Um, you know, both are true. Right. And, but working in a place where you are, you know, the families, you mm. know, the extended family, you're kind of in a, in a subordinate position yeah. to the family. Right. Yeah. That, that's, that's a great point. Like I, I would never presume myself to be of greater significance than than my students' parents. Right. You know, like to me, like it's their job to educate their children and I'm there to serve them. You You're know, a facilitator, to, to, yeah. Right, you know, to, to that end. But I think that what we have going at my school that I'm very thankful for, and you know, like I'm not looking to, you know, leave or, or do anything else or start my own school or anything like that. I, I, I don't know that I could anyway. <laughs> Um, I don't have an administrative bone in my body. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the trajectory of education, I, I think, is it, it's going further towards centralization. And one of the ways that that's, that's showing up, even in rural Kentucky, is uh, this jargon. And, and I'll just give you one of the examples, like saying that, that students need to become global citizens. right. Like, that's not possible. Right. That it's completely impossible. Now, it's like, well, it's also too vague to, to really mean anything right. particular. Yeah, yeah. But so, so it's like, well, we're not just supposed to teach reading, writing, and arithmetic, which even though I'm in a very good school, like very high performing, you know, we could do better at that. Sure. And I, and I hope that we do. But on top of those things, we're supposed to like inculcate global citizenship which that's just like plucked straight from John Dewey, you know, from a hundred and, you yes. know, something years ago. Yes. Like it's just global citizen. Like you, you, you can't, it's, it's not, it's not possible. Now, do you mean that, that students need to have an awareness of other cultures? Okay. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Like but at what point does, do you prioritize other cultures over their own culture? Over learning about their own culture, right? Like, shouldn't you have a? Value? I mean, we're we sound like alt right extremists now, and if, right, but except like, like that sounds like an alt right extremist, or it sounds like 
a left-wing ex- extremist. Right, right, right. Sure, sure. You so know, we're just extremists. Let's just, <laughs> right, all right. I mean, because, like, gentrification, like, hello, like, or or uh, or cultural appropriation. Right, Like, right. That, that's saying, like, we have to be hands-off with other cultures. Well, how about hands-off of, like, the, the, like the rural Kentucky right. culture? Right, right. You know, which I, I don't know that, 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 that in western Kentucky that it's as marginalized as it is in eastern Kentucky with, with Appalachia. Yeah. But, I mean, you know. Like, like that's, that's where a lot of my people come from, but man, it's, it's like, it's, it's so, it's so inconsistent. It's, um, it's just not practical. It's not, pra- it's not practicable or practicable. Is that right? Is that yeah. 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 So we must be global citizens, man. Like, like, what do you mean? Like, do you mean that they should stop having a community identity? Are right. you saying that they should stop having a state identity? Are you saying that they should stop having a national identity? Because haven't you just eliminated all intersectionality? Yeah. Is that is that what you mean? Yeah. Or are you being intentionally contradictory so that there's confusion because where there's confusion, it disrupts whatever uh, social structure happens to be there because you have another one that you want to pl- replace it with? Like, does, mean, it, does it not make sense on purpose? Yeah, I, 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 I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm not sure, and I don't like to think. I'm, I'm not. I've never been a conspiratorial person, and I don't. In the words of Anthony Burgess, I don't think there's some giant spider <laughs> pulling all the strings yeah. behind GM and Johnson and Johnson and Capitol Hill, but I do think there is. There's a sense in which Johnson and Johnson, GM, um, Nike, are happy to see social structures collapsing because the only thing that gives people purpose and meaning once that happens is material goods, right? That they will buy from. So people who are smart enough to have a good enough job to buy their products because they're manipulated by their advertising a la Bernays, but not smart enough that they see through all of the nonsense and say, I don't need it. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, I think we just solved all the problems here. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's yeah. And it, uh, it's, I've always had this impression that the people I went to school with, um, college, I mean, were being sort of half educated, mm-hmm. but coming away with the impression that they were very well educated. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I I was lucky enough to have two or three really good professors that pulled the wool out of uh, away from our eyes yeah. and showed us, you know. Talked about people like Edward Bernays. Yeah. Talked about people like, um, I can't think of any others right now because I'm not that well educated. But I was educated enough to start questioning things that don't make sense to me. Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of people that I went to college with are educated enough to be able to argue with you and tell you that you're wrong. Mm -hmm. But they they don't have any principles they don't have any first principles and they don't have that instinct for questioning. They don't have that. C.S. Lewis has a term for that. Uh-huh. Men without chests. 
Interesting. Yes, I, I remember this. Yeah. Yeah. So that's <clears throat> that's from the Abolition of Man, which, man, I, I've I've read this book. Well, it's just a, a series of three essays. I, I've read that so many times. Like, so from the time that I I started my master's program back in 2007 until now, that there are a couple of writers and a few different books by those writers that I feel like have helped me really stay sane. <laughs> right. Right. And one of those is Wendell Berry. Which you, yeah. Yeah, which I, I sent you his name. And his book, Sex, Economy, Freedom, and Community. Okay. I, I read I read the first essay in that book, which is called The Joy of Sales Resistance. I bet I read that, I don't know, a couple of times a month mm. throughout my entire master's degree. <clears throat> and, and that it helped me see through, or it helped me recognize what, what the foundational assumptions were behind the educational practices Mm-hmm. That that I was learning about, right? And then another one is C.S. Lewis uh-huh. um, in the Abolition of Man. So it's it's three essays. Um, the first one is called Men Without Chests. The second one is called The Dow, not the Dow Jones Industrial Average, but like the Dow, like T A O. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Way. And then the third one is called The Abolition of Man. And in uh, Men Without Chests, he he talks about like the classical understanding of of what a human being is, uh, and it's like three three parts. And so, classically speaking, you have the uh, the mind as the seat of the intellect, yep, the head, yeah. You have the the belly as the seat of desire, mm-hmm. which we would think heart, but you know, if you think like butterflies in your stomach, right. you know, like your desires sort of like well up from 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 down in there, like you know, from your bowels, so right, to speak. Right. And hu- I mean, hunger, hunger, exactly, it, yeah, yeah, and hunger being you know just a like shorthand for all right, physical right. desires. But then you have the the middle, the chest, which serves as, as the seat of morality mm-hmm. and the seat of, of reason. And without it, what you so you have the the intellect primarily functioning to to give the the belly whatever it wants. It's like okay, the, the, the belly has this desire. How can we figure out logistically how to make that happen? Right. And so you have to have that thing in the middle that, that mediates between the two, mm-hmm. that, that's listening to both the belly and to the mind and can say, okay, all right, belly, I hear you. All right, mind, I hear you. Right. But what's right? Yeah. What's good? Not, so so the, the, the mind, so, so the belly says, like, here's what I want. The mind says, how can I get it? Right. But the chest is supposed to say, should I? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, okay. And so you're saying that the men without chests are essentially self-interested materialists. Yeah, exactly. Without that mediating. Exactly. Just, just like you were describing, like you're describing the very situation that Lewis was talking about. And he's laying the blame in men without chests at the feet of what then was called modern education, uh-huh. which is still the educational paradigm that predominates uh, not just the Western world, but you might say the entire industrialized world today. Mm-hmm. And so he gives examples from actual textbooks um, fr- from his day of, of how exactly they remove the middle from children before they ever know it's there. One example is this. Um, he, he, so he quotes from this particular book. He calls it the Green Book, uh, which he, he actually had a copy of. I found the name of it once, but I don't remember what it is. Real book, not made up. 
And so this, this lesson for probably middle school or early high school students um, was this. Whenever we seem to be making a statement of value, we are really saying something about our own feelings. And it gives the example uh, from Coleridge when he saw, he came upon a couple of people looking at a waterfall. One said that it was beautiful and the other one said it was just pretty. And Coleridge agreed with the person who called it beautiful, or no, sublime. That's what it was, sublime or pretty. He agreed with the person who called it sublime because he was saying that like the waterfall merited by its very nature, merited that response. And, and so that's, that's what these, these guys in this textbook were debunking. He said it seemed like he was making a statement about the waterfall, but he was just making a statement of his own feelings. Right. Like when I look at that waterfall, I have feelings in my mind that are associated with the word sublime. Right. And they're, they, they, what they're trying mm-hmm. to do is get rid of those feelings because those feelings muddy up the intellect. Those feelings muddy up the, you know, and, and it's, it's something that like uh, Ben Shapiro always says to my great annoyance, <laughs> facts don't care about your feelings. Yeah. And he'll say that to try to say, you know, if a transgender person says, I feel like a woman, mm-hmm. he'll say, well, you're, you know, there's, there's X and Y chromosomes and you have, to, you have X and Y, so you don't, you're not a woman. But yeah, I can't get past his voice. It's, a, it's, it's, it's annoying. But in, doing, in saying that, he's, he's, he's taking a stand as a materialist. He is. As a gross, yes. you know, godless materialist, which... I, I, this is one of two episodes that we're going to be throwing godless materialists around a lot. <laughs> um, and I, I think that is precisely what is lacking is the soul is the, the middle yeah. the heart, the, the feelings, I suppose. Yeah. The, and, and Lewis actually says that he says that in all of his experience with students, because, you know, he was a, uh, first a, uh, like an Oxford Don, you know, and a, a tutor at, at Oxford and then the, the chair of medieval and Renaissance literature at Cambridge starting in, I think, 1953. Um, he said, for every student I've found that has an excess of, let's say, emotion or sentiment, uh-huh. um, I've seen a hundred that don't have enough. Yeah. So he said that the goal of the educator should not be to, uh, like, cut down the trees in the jungle but to irrigate deserts. Interesting. Ooh, I like that yeah. metaphor. And, and so, so what he was saying was that what that lesson would, would lead a child to assume is that any statement of value is purely subjective. And so they, they, never, even, they never have a sense that it's possible that there could be objective value. Right. And thus objective meaning. Right. And so since it's before they ever like that their minds are even fully developed. It's like they are cut off from that human faculty and it's just, so it atrophies, you know, that human capacity to consider the good and why it's good. Just, it just doesn't develop. It's totally underdeveloped. Yes. And so, you know, they, they get down the road 10 or 15 years and they, they'll take one side in a debate rather than another simply due to these assumptions that were inculcated when they were children in school. Yeah. And this is one of the things that I feel has only been exacerbated by removing the arts from schools. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was a big, when I was, I believe I was out of, 
out of school by this point, but there was a big national campaign to get students learning, get the, the whole STEM campaign, science, yeah. technology, engineering, and mathematics. Mathematics. Yeah. And what, of course, that does is it builds the intellect. Maybe. Maybe. Well, <laughs> its, desi it's design is to build the intellect. And, but when you leave out art from that, and by art, I mean music, painting, mm -hmm. um, any of them, literature, the, the liberal arts, which we'll get to here in just yeah. a bit. Um, when you leave that out, you, you lose, again, that heart, that middle, that compromise between the gut and the intellect, mm -hmm. the, um, the ability to make sound judgments about yep. the information or entertainment that you're consuming or mm -hmm. food. Yeah. And so you see, I mean, just over the course of my lifetime, but especially if you go back to, uh, you know, the 1800s or the 1700s, you see a decline in taste mm -hmm. and a decline in aesthetic. Right. And it, you it's, can even it's look inversely this, proportional to like, like the decline of those things you're talking about is, is inversely proportional to the, to the rise of commercialization and industrialization. Yes. And, and it's like all of its kind of um, uh, marketing. Yes. You know, all the correlated marketing. Yes. Yes. And so you see, I mean, and even marketing, I mean, marketing for, you know, all of its demonic qualities was there was a, a when I was a child, it was still funny. Like there were, it was still pretty well done. Mm -hmm. I've seen commercials on YouTube ads or uh, YouTube videos that are just they, like the music that's accompanying them is crap. Yeah. The, the, the animations are crap. The. There was an ad campaign by, I think, Uber Eats that's been pretty ubiquitous that's Lil Nas X and Elton John. Oh, man. I, like, I, I, I watch so little, like, YouTube or, in, like, I don't listen to much radio. I don't, right. watch, I don't watch TV. So whenever I see these things, like if I'm, I don't know, sitting in the dentist office or there's a video that I am actually watching for some reason, it's so jarring. And I saw that one with Lil Nas X. Yeah. If that's how you say it. Yeah. And Elton John. And Elton John. And, and it's just like neither of them are charismatic. Neither of them know, look like they know how to deliver their lines. Right. It's, it's literally just a sort of unannounced appeal to the LGBTQ community. Right. But their portrayal, even, I mean, like it's pandering. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. it, 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 it's, it's like equal parts pandering and virtue signaling. Right. Because it's like. But it's it, terrible look, marketing. Right. It, like they've it, gone it, so yeah. far south with their mark that it's like you're you're not even doing marketing right anymore. Yeah. And marketing was the last form of art that we still have. Like, like, is this, so is this what gay black men aspire to? Is like the portrayal <laughs> of Lil Nas X in that commercial? Right. Right. Like riding a mechanical horse designed for a child in like frilly Western getup. Right. Like being trailed by Elton John. Right. This is the the epitome of like what that identity is supposed to manifest? No, it's 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 disturbing. Yeah, it's disturbing. And yeah, so I mean, when marketing has fallen to such lows, I think you can safely say that the people who are creating art, the people that do have an aesthetic sensibility, 
that isn't it completely in the dirt are have checked out. They're yeah. not, or they're, or they're, they've been forcefully excluded from what the um, the market, the establishment. Yeah, the, yeah. the market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, th- I think you're you're exactly right. It's it's disgusting. Um, you know that, that that essay from Barry, Joy of Sales Resistance. It you can you can find it online. Just like don't Google because they're not good. It's not a good thing. Yeah. So use DuckDuckGo or some other's private browsing thing where they don't like, you know. And now to... a word from our sponsor, ExpressVPN. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 yeah, use a VPN. Right. And, oh, here's, here's a Wendell Berry uh, quote for you from a poem of his. I think it's called, oh, man, is it The Mad Farmer Revolution Front or is it some further words? Anyway, this is a Wendell Berry poem. It says, as soon as the generals and the politicos can predict the motions of your mind, lose it. Leave it as a sign marking the false trail, the way you didn't go. Be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary, some in the wrong direction. Practice resurrection. Mm. Some Wendelberry for you. But look up the joy of sales resistance. Or even did, I better, mention, did I mention that we're inciting an insurrection on the podcast tonight? <laughs> Man. So yeah. no, go, that's, go that's and find that book or yeah. look it up. The Joy of Sales Resistance. It's brilliant. It's from like 1993 or 1994. And it, it's prophetic. Yeah. It really is prophetic. Like back in 1986, he wrote an essay called Why I'm Not Going to Buy a Computer. And it is spot on. Like it's not dated at all. It's still just as relevant today, which means that it's, it's not that it's relevant. It's that it's true. Right. Yeah, actually, that, that's, it that, that's that, a... It means that for all of the, scare quotes, technological progress that we've experienced in the past 30 years, we haven't really. Yes. We've, oh, yeah, that, that's a great point. And uh, that's something that Lewis talks about in The Abolition of Man. I think the third essay, which is The Abolition of Man, he makes the point, it's the titular essay, uh-huh. or the title track, right. so to speak. Right. The eponymous, eponymous, the eponymous, yes, hip hop anonymous, hip hop yeah. Sorry, that's a uh, flight of the Concords. Yes, hip hop apotamus and the rhinoceros. Yeah, right, right. Okay, I, I won't break into a uh, freestyle. Please don't. Yeah, no. We gotta keep from copyright infringement. Right. I mean, you know, thing. we want this to be family friendly, yeah. and you know, I wouldn't want to just drop a whole bunch of, you know, explicit sexually inappropriate language on obviously, you know, a family centered right. show. I do that on my other episodes. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, what, what, what was I saying? Uh, hip hop. Uh, oh, abolition of man. So he says that man's conquest over nature is actually not a net growth of strength or power because if I'm so, so let's say that, you know, I have a car and so I can travel a far distance in a short amount of time. That doesn't mean that I'm actually fast or strong. Right. Like if I make you carry me, I am not therefore a stronger person. So every triumph of man over nature, quote unquote, is actually a triumph of triumph of man over man. So if you think about like contraception or airplanes right, or the internet all of those things are controlled by some men and can therefore be, I mean, humans, and, and can therefore exclude those they desire. Right. 
you know? Yeah. So, yeah, so man's conquest over nature is simply the conquest of some men over others. Interesting. Yeah. Now, see, this is very interesting because C.S. Lewis, a devout Christian, a... Eventually. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, not one you would normally associate with the godless Jews that were teaching in Frankfurt <laughs> and who exported their critical theory to the United States at the end of World War II. Yeah. That was pretty much their assessment as well, mm. that the Industrial Revolution, that modern technological progress was in fact our downfall. Yeah. And what's interesting to me is that the hard, hard left, not the center left that you see in Washington or on TV or that's so woke, mm -hmm. but the hard, hard left are, are critical of modern industrial capitalism. Mm -hmm. The hard, hard right are critical of modern industrial corporatism. Yeah. And, but neither of these voices are really heard because the, you know, again, Republicans and Democrats are not interested in critiquing modern consumer industrial capitalism. Yeah. You might say that it's, it's two heads of the same monster. Yes. Or two sides of the same. I, I like the, like the monster imagery better. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that, that, that is really interesting and and maybe the way that that functions is to try to actually drive a wedge between, you might say, far left and, and far right, who who might find significant common ground that could challenge, right? You know, the, the the corporatist narrative being pervaded by, you know, kind of both sides of the majority and minority parties in our, you know, two party system. Yeah, because I mean, and and you see it in the you know the in the the popular issues of the day, the popular issues of the day that are very, what, divisive and drive a wedge between your ordinary citizens mm -hmm. are issues that, I don't wanna say they're inconsequential, but they're, they affect a very small minority of people. You know, like transgenderism, like bathrooms, that's a big wedge issue. Mm -hmm. It affects like 0.004% of the population. Mm. Abortion has been a huge wedge issue since the 80s. It, it, it's not affecting an inordinate amount of people. It's, you know, whatever your views on it are, they shouldn't be enough to make you hate your fellow man because he believes differently. Well, yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. You're, I, I agree about that. I mean, and I mean um, the one, the one issue you could say is affects does affect a lot of people is like poverty within the black community, mm -hmm. just because there's, it's it's disproportionately affects the black well, of course, community. Abortion disproportionately affects the black community, Indeed and it was always it supposed to. And you know, you're right. Go back to Margaret Sanger. Hey, I'll tell you another good book: Eugenics and Other Evils by G.K. Chesterton. Ah, we're talking like. Uh, I think he wrote it right before World War One, uh -huh. and then he published it right after World War One. Okay, eugenics and other evils. Like he was calling out the, I mean, the eugenicists, right, way before the Holocaust ever happened, because like that was kind of like the the woke elite, yes, thing. Yes, was 
eugenics. You, can, we, can we remind you what they were what they were called? They were called the progressives. Oh yeah, the progressive. I don't know movement. how that word is still. How, how is that okay? How is that still a politically viable word to yeah. use to describe yourself? They, these were phrenologists. These were eugenicists. Yes. These were people that experimented medically on black people yes. and Jewish people and, and marginalized and, and poor, people. poor white people. Poor white people. Anybody they deemed to, to be uh, socially irrelevant. Mm-hmm. And they, they slapped all sorts of labels on it. But like the eugenics laws were still on the books in some states like North Carolina until the 1970s. Yeah. There are people alive today still who were forcibly sterilized right. by state eugenics boards right. or, you know, like health authorities. Yeah. And, and this is not like right-wing conspiracy stuff. Like you can read it on NPR. Yeah. Like NPR has reported on this. Right. Of course, you know, it disproportionately affected the black community, which is not okay. It's not good, yeah. but it wasn't good from the beginning. And if they would have listened, like, it's not like nobody knew that this could go really south in a, in a hurry because G.K. Chesterton was sounding the alarm way before these people ever had enough power to actually do the things that they were talking about. Right. And, you know, then World War II hit. It's like, oh, wow, who, who knew? Yeah. Who, who knew that bad things like that could happen? Right. Well, I don't know, maybe G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> maybe anyone. I mean, you, it's... It, yeah, it's, it's true. Like, how do you... Like, the, the level of hubris... <clears throat> And self-righteousness that it takes to say, because of X and Y and Z, I will not permit you to procreate. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, fill in the blank. <clears throat> because, like, it could start with race. Yeah. Or it could start with religion. But if it starts with religion, it's going to bleed into race. If it starts with race, it's going to bleed into religion. Yeah. Or it's going or to bleed into, like, IQ level. IQ level. <clears throat> or, you know. But it um, doesn't matter what it is. Because, like, the nature of reality is that things that are permitted to occur grow. And so, <clears throat> I mean, the, 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 there you have it. Like, nobody was talking at first about doing it to Jews. And, like, in the United States, when the eugenics movement started, it was mostly focused on poor white people and poor black people. Right. Hitler took it and ran with it. Yep. And it was uh, Jews, gypsies, eventually Catholics. Christians, homosexuals, the disabled, the elderly. Right. And, and the, <clears throat> the, you know, the liberal left today would, would like to associate eugenicism and with extreme right, the extreme right, because that's sort of what Hitler represents to them, even though it doesn't map on our current political environment. But let's not forget that the Soviet Union was doing the exact same thing in order to yeah. create the perfect Soviet man. They were, the, you know. The, yeah, the, the Soviets killed upwards of 60 million of their own people. Right. And and the Chinese killed upwards of 90 or 100 million right. of, of their own people. A paltry 6 million Jews. <laughs> like, yeah, of course. No, you know, not, not saying the Holocaust wasn't <laughs> bad, but. Horrible. But other atrocities were committed. Right. By people on the left. Right. By people, I, don't, I won't even say on the left, we'll say of a Marxist persuasion. Right. and <clears throat> Of a socialist persuasion. Yeah, I, I guess I'm not really sure of like what the distinction would be. Maybe it's like violence would be one of them. Um, I, I don't know. Well, like, tell, me, tell me what you think because you're probably more well-read in that area than I am. Of the, with the distinction between... Like a Marxist and a leftist. Oh. 
<clears throat> I don't, I mean, I don't really know because, I mean, I, I think leftism, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what they mean anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I know I like Jordan Peterson's um, dichotomy where he says, you know, the left are the tend to be the empathetic folks. OK, that's talking more that, personality. Right, right, right. And so they're the people that you need. That's but as a movement, it's the movement that you need to make sure that the dispossessed and those who are on the lower rungs of the ladder are not forgotten about mm-hmm. and trodden upon. Yeah. And the right are the more, um, God, I don't even know what status quo, status quo, preserving whatever structures already exist, whatever structures already <clears throat> exist. Yes. Yeah. And so you need change within those structures. You need structures do need to change and evolve over time. Yeah. But you know, William F. Buckley's, <clears throat> whole uh, characterization of the conservative as the guy standing astride history, screaming, slow down. Yeah. It's. So here's what Chesterton said. Um, Chesterton said that if a progressive ever came to, the the difference between a progressive and a conservative is that the progressive wants to, let's say, for example, tear down all of the gates uh-huh. Or all of the fences that he doesn't see the use for. Right, right, right. And, and yeah, Ches- okay, yeah, yeah. And Chesterton said, "Well, it, that's exactly the person that I wouldn't let tear down fences and gates. But if you can go figure out why it was put there in the first place, then come back and tell me. Then we can talk about removing it. Right. Because if you don't know like why a structure was there or why, what might go sideways with removing it, you have no business touching the thing. Right." And, and I, I think that, that that would be a good way for the left and the right to not just peacefully coexist, but to to complement each other. Because if you do go with Peterson's conception of kind of a more like personality based understanding of like the liberal, I guess, like personality tendency as opposed to the conservative. Right. Like clearly we do need both of those those sides. Yeah. Not to produce some sort of. uh um, I don't know, equilibrium, but to actually promote what's, what's best. Like you, sure. you need the, per, I mean, even in the, the, the disciples, you know, you had the doubting Thomas. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like Thomas questioned the narrative, yeah. even though it was a narrative that happened to be true. He questioned it and Jesus didn't criticize him for it. Right. You know, and I think that that, I mean, I think that that's literally and historically true, but I also think that it's like s- symbolically or like sure. psychologically true. You've got to have the doubting Thomas. You've got to have the person willing to question the narrative, whether that, whether that narrative, whether the prevailing narrative happens to be more like conservatively oriented or more liberally oriented, there's got to be the space for the voice of dissent, right. which is not just what has been under attack in our society, but I, I think, I think that the seeds of that attack show up in education. Yeah. Interesting. Um, well, we've done like an hour 15. <laughs> uh, we didn't get to the trivium and the quadruvium yet. Um, but I, I, the, the, I think we should, we should save that for a, another episode. Sure. That's a, yeah. that's a big, big can of it is. Um, that, that's medieval a whole... worms. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, if it's medieval worms, I guess we could spell it like W Y R M S. 
and it's like, actually a dragon. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, yeah, let's do that. Let's do. Let's save that, and maybe we can we can tackle like the discarded image or something. Yeah, absolutely. On the yeah, next I'd, one. I, yeah, I'd be glad to you know talk about anything that's like education related or. Any, anything like that, you know, C.S. Lewis or just kind of the, the evolution of society right. over time. Yeah, I, I, I think about that a lot. And I, but I think I have to as a, as a teacher. Absolutely. You know, like I, I, I want to think about and, and learn more about the context that I'm operating in. What's come before. Yeah. How it's different. And I mean, I'll leave, we'll leave people with this, is that that's why history is so important. Mm-hmm. Whether it was written by dead white men or whether they had slaves or whatever, whatever your beef with history may be. Mm-hmm. Again, again, I think all of these social justice issues that people bring up are just sort of like band-aids to hide the cracks in their knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so when you have somebody that doesn't want to learn history, that can't be bothered to learn history, they'll make up an excuse. Sure. And they'll say, you know, oh, well, I don't want to read dead, about dead white men or I don't want to read about someone that held slaves. Well, you should. Yeah. You yeah, should that, understand that's... what came before because you, you need to understand that in order to understand why we're in the situation we're in. Yeah. I will not tolerate intolerance. <laughs> this is an environment of welcoming, so you can get the hell out of here. Are you kicking me out of my own studio? No. Okay, uh, I'm, I'm actually uh, quoting The Office, but ah, I, I think ah. it I think it holds. Yeah, yeah, a lot of The Office does. <laughs> um, thank you for coming on the show, man. My pleasure. This has been great. Yeah, we'll do it again very soon. Awesome. All right, folks, get on over to social media and like us. If you can't be bothered. I totally understand. (laughs) And y'all have a good night.